My name is Eric. I have the privilege of serving in the high school ministry. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, and I'll be reading from the NIV. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Yet one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Thank you, Eric. As we continue our journey through the book of Philippians that we're calling our field guide to joy, we remember on this day that we pray for persecuted Christians that that joy is available to all people all over the world and in any circumstance. And that means this joy is available to the people we just prayed for and to you today. And Paul's writing this letter from jail about joy, but he's talking about it in different ways. And today we come to a passage that really is about change. How can we find joy as it's related to the change that needs to happen in our life? Let's pray together and let's invite the Spirit of God to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you that this joy is made available to us and to everyone across the globe. And it is not restricted by our own circumstance. It is not restricted by opposition. It is made available to us by faith, through the finished work of your Son. And I pray that we would experience that joy today, particularly into the way in which you want to change us the process of maturity, which can often be discouraging for many of us. I pray that you would teach us and help us to find joy within it. And for those who've never trusted in you, I pray that today they would understand the gospel, all that you've done for them in Jesus, and that today they would believe and be changed. We ask that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. If you could change anything about your life, what would you change? It's a question I'm sure many of us think about on a daily, if not for some, an hourly basis. But then there's a related question. How would you change? What resource would you look to or toward to help you achieve that change? 
I ask these questions because our times today are not dissimilar to the times in which the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. Because today, like back then, people are seeking change And they're always looking to different sources for it. And there seem to be three predominant and popular options people have looked to in the past and are looking to today for change. One is what we'll call the the pagan option. The answer for change is you've got to like align with the universe. However you do that, back in the Greek and Roman times, it was this spirituality like in many ways today, whether that's through like Pilates and granola or whatever, there was this idea that if I can just align with the universe somehow, some way, I will change. But then there's a second popular option, what we'll call the religious option. They would say, hang on, there is a God. But if you're going to be changed by God, you need to do the work first. You need to find out what God's demands are. You need to find out what his law is. And you need to keep all those rules. And if you can keep them, if you can get the right performance, then you will change. And some are seeking change through the religious view. But then there's a third option. We'll call it the the modern option, which is this idea that... uh, Your own self-fulfillment will change you. Whether it's finding the right career. Oh, if I could just have this career, then I would truly find the change that I need. Or it's often found in a romantic relationship. That's why all the love songs that, that you hear on the radio are sometimes, you know, either codependent or borderline idolatrous. Right? The lyrics are like, you, I was lost and you found me. I was in the dark and you saved me. You've cleansed me. And you're like, what are we talking about here? You changed me. You rescued me. Or you like to be the rescuer. We've known a lot of people in our lives when looking for another possible mate, they're like, yeah, they're pretty rough, but I could fix them. I can change them. People are looking to change. But where are they looking? Well, the Bible clearly says that all of these different paths will actually never address our true need for change, nor will they provide the power to change. But the good news is found here. Paul the Apostle is telling us that God is the one who brings the change we need. He provides the power that we need to change and our response is required. And here in Philippians 3, Paul describes his own change. And as we explore it, we learn that God doesn't just change one part of your life. He changes the whole of your life. Earlier in this chapter, Paul has just answered the question, how do I enter a relationship with God? How how can I know that I'm accepted by God? And he has stated that the approval we need, the acceptance we need from God is nothing but a sheer gift. Though our sin has separated us from God, our penalty was transferred to Jesus when he died on the cross. And his perfect record was transferred to us when we choose to believe in Jesus. The moment you trust in Jesus, you begin to change. But now, in the form of his own personal testimony and story, he answers the question, what are those changes? How do I know if I am changing? 
And so from this text, I want to highlight three big changes that take place in your life when you become a Christian and how these changes come about. And as we do, I want you to ask, friend, I want you to ask, have I experienced this change? Am I experiencing these changes? Because you, if you have not experienced any of these changes, then have you truly trusted in Jesus? Or are you still trying to change and save yourself? Paul has just described at the beginning of this chapter how he tore up his resume that he once cherished and thought would bring him the change that he needed before God. And he's trusted in Jesus. And now he goes on to describe his own personal change. And it is a change in passion, perspective, and purpose. And so the first mark of change is this. You have a new passion in your life. That's one of the big changes that God brings about in your life when you trust in Jesus. See, Paul used to be passionate about something else. Paul used to be passionate about his performance. It was the thing that he invested in. It was the thing that he thought was going to bring real, lasting, even eternal transformation. Like many of us were so passionate about pursuing, oh, if I could just get this, if I could just attain that, then I would truly change. But a change has occurred in him as he's trusted in Jesus. And now, what does he say? Verse 10 and 11. Now, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow obtaining to the resurrection from the dead. In this statement, Paul makes his passion in life and the priority of his life absolutely clear and models for you and I what our primary passion ought to be. And friends, it is vital that we get this right. The early church theologian Augustine once said that all of our miseries come because of disordered loves. Disordered loves. This is probably quite different from the way that we all talk about problems today. But according to the Bible's worldview, it's not that we lack passion or that we lack love. It's that we love the wrong things or that we love good things in the wrong way, that we're ultimately passionate about the wrong things. See, all of us in this room, we could say, well, I'm passionate about my family. And on its own, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But it is a dangerous thing if your passion for your family exceeds your passion for God. Here's why. Number one, it will destroy your life because your family will never save you. And number two, you will destroy your family because you will be expecting from your family what only God can give and you will crush them with your demands. The same is true of a romantic relationship. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, you're going to be my savior. You're going to give me what I need. You're going to change me from the inside out. And the other person's like, uh, what? I just thought this was a date, you know. <laughs> because we have all this expectation. Like, you are my passion. You're my everything. It's like, whoa. Let's be clear about your expectations here. See, Augustine called these disordered loves. We either love the wrong things or we love good things in the wrong way. And it 
results in a life that is out of order. But the Bible says, and Paul here clearly states, that God is our highest good. And all other goods flows from him and is meant to lead us toward him. Joy is found in loving him and being changed by him. He should be our chief passion. But when we seek our value and our worth and our significance in lesser things, and we make them our primary passion, it all falls apart. To put it simply, if our loves are out of order, our lives will be out of order. But if our loves are reordered, then our lives will be also. And that's what Paul's experiencing here. He's like, man, I used to live for my own resume. I thought I was a good person. I was like killing it in the religious life, but I realized that none of this would save me. None of this would make me right before God. But then I met Jesus and I knew he died for my sins and he rose again to give me a new life. And now I want to know him. So to put it simply, what is Paul talking about? Well, there's two sides to this passion. One, it is to know the one who saves us. It's to know Jesus. If you think about it, to really know someone is to have their presence impact your daily life. If you really know someone, them being around you, or if they're a family member, like living with you, to really know them is to have their presence impact your daily life. Marriage is a great example. When my wife and I got married, the day of our wedding, we didn't say, right, well, well, we've done marriage now, so what's next? No, marriage was, that, that day of our wedding was the beginning of a lifelong journey. I often tell couples who are doing marriage prep, I'm like, remember, you're not preparing for a wedding, you're preparing for a marriage. Because everyone's like, wedding, and what's the little centerpiece going to be? I'm like, let's just maybe reprioritize things a little bit. It's a lifelong journey. And I can tell you that I've been changed by the presence of Lindsay Chaddock. And if you knew what I was like 21 years ago, you would all say, amen, that is a good thing to be changed by the presence of Lindsay Chaddock for the better. To know someone is to have their presence impact your daily life. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's the idea behind the word. To know someone is also to recognize them, to know what they are like to know what they are up to. And there's two phrases that Paul uses that specifically describe what he's talking about. First, he says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. Why would Paul want to know the power of his resurrection? Well, there's at least two reasons. One, because the power of the resurrection of Jesus saves us. When Jesus died on the cross for our sin, he rose again. And that means that the check was cashed. That means that the price was paid. That means that our sins can be forgiven. Jesus raises our relationship with God out of the grave and into new life. The resurrection saves us. He wants to know that power. But secondly, the, res the resurrection also sustains us. Jesus is alive. And he dwells with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we're told in the book of Hebrews, right now is interceding for you, standing in the gap for you. This means that we can know the ongoing 
power of the resurrection in our daily lives. And that is good news. But to know someone is not only to know all the benefits of being in a relationship, but also the hardships. This is part of knowing someone. And so Paul says, this little twist in the line, nobody highlights this part. They highlight, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. You're like, yeah! And the fellowship of his suffering. You're like, oh, well, the ink kind of ran out. Like, I don't know, that doesn't get me excited. But this is so crucial. To know and follow Jesus will lead to being treated like Jesus. If people opposed and persecuted Jesus, then if you follow him, don't be surprised when you are opposed and when you are persecuted. Sadly, some of us act as if it's a surprise. But it reminds me of a famous quote from Martin Luther, one of the great reformers. He once said, they gave our master a crown of thorns. Why do we hope for a crown of roses? We're often surprised when suffering comes into the picture. You say, okay, I get that. But why does Paul say, I want to know? You're like, usually I wouldn't list that as one of my priorities of the day. How many of us wake up in the morning, if you're a Christian, you're like, this morning, it's Monday, I want to know the power of the resurrection, and I want to know the fellowship of your sufferings. I guarantee you, very few of us have like prayed that on a daily basis. So why does he seek to know this? Here's why. As this happens, as we experience the opposition and the hardship of following Jesus, something happens. And that's the other side of this passion. One is to know the one who saves us, but secondly, he longs to show the one who saves us to a watching world. Paul goes on to say, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death. See, Paul understands that a change is happening as he follows Jesus. He is being changed, and part of the way in which that change comes is through hardship and difficulty and suffering. Now, I want you to take note of something interesting here. The order in which Paul presents the events of Jesus. You read that and think, surely he's got it wrong. It's death first, resurrection second, right? And of course, when you read the Gospels, that is exactly how it happened. Jesus Christ came and he lived and then he died on a cross and he rose again on the third day. That is the historic order of events. So why does he reverse them here? I believe it is for this reason. Because even though that's the historic events of Christ, he came, he suffered, he rose again, in the Christian life, the first thing you experience is that, that being raised with him. For those of you who can remember the day in which you trusted in Jesus and you knew you were forgiven of your sins, I hope you can all recall that day. I remember that day as it was for me. I was like, I can't believe this. I'm forgiven. I don't have to run a, away from God. I can run towards God. Like everything changed. But it was only a matter of hours before I, on my way home from this Christian event that I went to and I got saved and I was like, I'm new. And then I, I stopped by a payphone. Remember those? Anyone? 
I went to a payphone and I called my friends and I was like, I became a Christian. And like, what? You are a fool. Well, they didn't say fool. They used other colorful language to describe it. But I immediately experienced opposition. See, Paul's using the order that he is here because that's the experience of the Christian life. You, you trust in Jesus. You experience this resurrection lift. But then you immediately face hardship and opposition in this fallen world. But it's that resurrection power that enables you to be transformed as you face them. See, friends, what you need to know is the part of the changing process does involve suffering. These sufferings are not without purpose. So let's be clear. Paul is not praising suffering as though suffering by itself is a virtuous thing. Paul's not like a masochist, you know, like those trainers that are like, pain is weakness, leaving the body. And you're like, oh, that's weird. I'm scared. You know, like Paul's not like, I love pain. No, it is to the extent that that suffering produces character, that character that reflects Jesus. That's why he says, I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Because as I do, I'm being changed and I show Jesus to the world. People see your life and they say, why are you willing to suffer for that? And you say, because Jesus is worth it. The watching world sees it. And this passion drives him forward in verse 11, where he says, if I might attain by any means to the resurrection of the dead. Now, at first, this statement could seem to create some uncertainty about the resurrection. Why does Paul use the word if? If I might by any means attain to the resurrection? Is Paul uncertain about his future? No. Paul is not uncertain about where he will end up. He's only uncertain about how he's going to get there. See, let's be clear. Jesus has given us a promise that we will be raised to glory. One day we will be ultimately remade in the very presence of God when we either breathe our last or when Jesus Christ returns for us. But until that day, there's going to be all kinds of obstacles and opportunities and I don't know what they are and I don't know how many days I have left to live on this earth. What Paul's uncertain about is the any means. Like, I'm not sure which way I'm getting there, but I know where I am headed. Another translation would be, if by whatever route I will attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is his passion. So let me ask you, are you content with just knowing about Jesus or truly knowing Jesus? There's a temptation for many Christians. It's a temptation I've faced in my own life where maybe you became a Christian years ago and you know all this information, you know all this stuff and maybe there's seasons in your life where you walk so near to him, you're like, yes, the presence of Jesus in my life. But over the years, you get a little jaded. You come into a worship service and other people are like, the presence of God. You're like, yeah, whatever. I don't really like this song. And just like week by week, I, feel, I see a few nodding heads. <laughs> week by week, you're just like, yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know. I memorized Philippians in my, you know, college group, you know, 20 years ago. Joy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, if you have the joy of the Lord, please notify your face because right now I'm not really feeling it from you. <laughs> Are you content with just knowing about 
Jesus or truly knowing him. Like, Jesus, I want to know you. Pray today. God, draw me near. Soften my heart. I want to put you at the center. And as you do this, you will reflect him to a watching world. And as you make him the passion of your life, it'll actually change the way that you look at yourself. It will change the way that, that you look at your own life and your own growth. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, when God reveals Jesus to a man, he at the same time reveals the man to himself. So the first mark of change is you have a new passion in your life. I want to know Jesus. And as a result, you will then truly understand yourself. And that leads to the second mark of change, a new perspective on your life. So the first mark he describes is a new passion in your life. I want to know Christ. The second mark is a new perspective on your life. Wanting to know Jesus, understanding that he's in Christ, changes the way that he evaluates his own life. Here's a man who at one time thought he had it all together. We read his resume in the first part of chapter three. He thought he had it all together. And yet this relationship with God through Jesus changed the way that he evaluated his life. It changed his perspective. And this is a perspective all of us should share. Let's call it a case study on how you and I should evaluate our lives. Look at verses 12 through 13. He says, not that I have already obtained all this. So as he's talking about his life, he's, he wants to be clear how he views his life. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. There is so much gold in this paragraph. Here, I want you to notice, Paul is aware of two things. He's aware of his imperfection, but he is also aware of his progress. And I hope and pray that we would share this same perspective. So think about it practically. First, we must see that maturity is essential. That is, we must keep growing. You can't just remain in idle. The Christian life, as it was described to me when I was a new Christian, is like riding a bicycle uphill. If you stop pedaling, you will go backwards. Maturity is essential. You must keep growing. Now, this is an interesting note coming from someone like Paul. Because in one sense, Paul was in a pretty good position. He's like, hey, when I lived like a religious life, I was killing it. Now that I'm a Christian, I wrote like a third of the Bible. I'm like a church planner, apostle. Like, I mean, hey, I would be more than happy to be in the position that Paul was. But with perspective, he says, the crown doesn't come till the end. He says, I'm not going to act like I've already arrived. Do you know anyone in the church who acts as if they have already arrived? Answer that to yourself. <laughs> there are some, and there are times in our own life, if we're honest, 
where we act as if we are farther than we truly are on the maturity path. There are some who walk around with a slight air of arrogance, like, yeah, I can't remember the last sin I had to confess. Like, gosh, 92, 93, I don't know. It's all blurry. It's been so long. (laughs) Or maybe the attitude they carry when they come to correct you, like, you know, they act as if they, they don't have any faults, any things that needs to be confessed. They're like, yeah, I've kind of got it all together. I know Greek, Hebrew, even a little Aramaic. <laughs> Pray in tongues, you know, in the prayer meeting, even though that's too much for other brothers and sisters. I, I tone it down. You're like, wow, you've, you've arrived. You're the finished article. Do you know people like that? Or are there times in your life when you think you are farther than you truly are on the maturity path. This truth here should humble us, friends. We need to change. We must keep growing. When you look at the perfection of Jesus, we realize we must keep growing. So if the Apostle Paul says, I've not yet arrived, you and I would do well to say the same. In fact, let's say it together. I have not arrived. arrived. Now we're all on the same page. So this is a helpful point for people who think they are farther than they truly are. You need to know maturity is essential. But I would suppose there are more of us in this room who don't struggle with that. There are some who think they've already arrived, but the rest of us think we'll never arrive. Oh, how many of us are there? You're like, I don't feel like I'm there. I'll never get there. If you're anything like me, this is what I say to my wife all the time. Like, if I fail again, I'm like, that's it. I'll never grow. I'm done. My wife's like, honey, you're so dramatic. Like, 21 years, she's put up with this. It's grace of God. I don't know. Holy Spirit, supernatural, miraculous stuff. I just feel like I will never grow. I will never grow. There are some of us who feel discouraged. Like, man, I'm never going to arrive. And that leads to the other side of this truth. Paul is not only aware of what remains to be done, he's also aware of his progress. And that's the second aspect of this new perspective on your life. Maturity is essential. We need to keep growing. Amen? But there's another truth. Maturity is possible. You are empowered to keep growing. Because Christ is in our life, Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, you and I, we can grow. And this is highlighted in the phrase that Paul uses there when he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. He says, yeah, I got got a long ways to go, but you know what? I know that Jesus Christ has a hold of my life, and that's why I have hope for my growth. Because I am in the grip of Christ And with that phrase here, Paul is showing us what makes Christianity so different from any other religion on the planet. See, all other religion is based on your ability to perform and your power to change yourself. Not so in Christianity. All other religions are like, you can change yourself. It's like every bestseller, you know, right now. Like, you can change yourself. But Paul says, no. Jesus is the one who has grabbed hold of my life. And he is the reason that I can change. He is the reason that I can grow. And it is these, true, these two truths that maturity is essential, but maturity is also possible. I know that there's a gap, 
but Jesus enables me to move forward. That keeps us from arrogance, lest we think we've arrived, or despair for those of us who think we'll never arrive. I love this, the balance of these true these truths here. Maturity is essential and it is possible. There are challenges all around us and yet in the midst we can grow. See, mature people are not born, they are made. And any parents in the room will say a hearty amen to that. Because whoever brought a child into the world that came fully mature, right? Like a two-year-old's like, how can I serve? <laughs> I'm here to serve you. Like, I've never heard that out of a two-year-old. You, you might come up after service with a story for me telling me, oh, my two-year-old, ever since they could talk, they're like, I'm here to serve. You know, parents keep like a record of first words, and you're like, oh, I hope it's mom, I hope it's dad. My kids were like, no. <laughs> oh. Like, I think all three of them, or mine, like, no and mine. I'm like, oh, did you learn that from mom? You know, like, <laughs> didn't learn it from me. <laughs> Mature people are not born. Mature people are made. How are they made? Because Christ has you. When you put your trust in him, you are in his grip. It is not the trials that mature you. It's what can happen in the trial as you trust in Christ that can mature you. Are your obstacles great? Yes. Is God's power even greater? Yes. And it is from here that Paul even addresses how he views his past. And I love this. Because for some of us, the past is a burden to us. We either rely on the past or we like relive it every day. But to be a Christian is to have a radically different way of relating to the past. And he says this in verse 13. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. What does Paul mean when he says forgetting that which is behind? Does that mean that Paul's past has escaped his memory? Like, hey, Paul, how'd you used to live? He's like, I can't remember ever since I became a Christian. That's not what he's talking about. And that's not how the Bible typically talks about forgetting and remembering. Let me give you an example. In the book of Isaiah, God says to his people regarding their sins, he says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Powerful statement. But what does it mean? Does that mean that God, when he thinks of you and when he thinks of me, he literally forgot about our sins. Like, oh, Lord, remember when I sinned? He's like, what? You sinned? Sorry, when was this? Like, he's asking the angels, hey, do we have a record? Like, <laughs> did it escape God's memory? No. The idea, the biblical idea behind forgetting and remembering is not that the truth has escaped the memory of God. When God says, I will remember your sins no more, he says, I will not look at you through the lens of your sins any longer. And it is the same idea that Paul has here in Philippians chapter 3. Paul has not forgotten what is in the past. It has not escaped his memory. But he is choosing not to look at his life through the performance of his past. 
He is not evaluating. That's his new perspective. I'm not going to evaluate my life based on the performance of my past. Many of us are. And if you think your past is awesome, you're just like, man, I, I've lived an amazing life. I didn't do anything wrong. Then you're going to puff yourself up. But for most of us, we're going to think of all our faults and our failures, and it's going to keep us from pressing forward. But Paul says, no, I have a new perspective. God shapes my perspective. He forgives me of my sins, and he looks at me through Jesus Christ. So it is true that all of us in this room, we are not yet where we should be. But it is also true that you are not where you once were. And that should be encouraging. That should be encouraging. John Newton, who is the author of the great famous hymn, Amazing Grace, former slave owner, become a Christian. He said this, Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was. We need to ask ourselves this morning two questions. Where should I grow? And how have I grown? And both are important. So you should ask this morning, where should I grow? God, what area in my life is it that you want to give me new perspective, biblical perspective on my life? What areas do you want to address? We need to ask that. Where are the gaps? But you also need to ask, where have I grown? One of the most encouraging things that can happen in the church is when other men and women in the church come up to you and they identify areas of growth. Have you ever had that happen? It's amazing. It's so encouraging. My wife has done this to me. When I'm in my black hole of self-pity, anyone? And I'm like, I can never change. She'll be like, look at how you've grown. You're way less neurotic than you were like two years ago. I'm like, really? Wow, that's amazing. You're way less crazy than you were five years. Oh, that's awesome. Friends, do you realize how powerful it is if this week, as you're gonna join a community group or meet up with other people from the church, think to yourself, when I'm meeting with this person for coffee or whatever it might be, how can I identify an area where I've seen them grow? And then start your conversation with that. Say, hey, it's good to see you. I just want to mention there's one area I've seen you grow. I know that tough situation you're dealing with, but man, I've seen your hunger for prayer grow in the last two years. Now, if that were me, I would cry on the spot, exposing my fragility. <laughs> it's so encouraging. You can do that this week. You need to be reminded of how far you've grown. Yes, you're not where you should be, but you are not where you once were. And that is good news. Though there is a gap between us now and our future glory, that gap is getting smaller day by day if you are headed in the right direction. And that's the last mark of change. It is a new purpose for your life. Paul concludes here by talking about the purpose, the goal that he is aiming towards. Where is this headed? Verse 14. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And the English translation of pressing on or 
Some translations are straining towards. They, they capture the image that the original Greek language portrays. Paul is capturing the idea of a runner with every muscle engaged as a runner must draw on all the energy reserve they have in a race. Paul is saying that is how I view the Christian life. Now in that, Paul is not saying that he or we should have a lifestyle of nonstop busyness. No, of course, in the Christian life, there are rhythms of rest and work. But the imagery here, when he says, I press on, teaches us a key aspect of how you should view your, your purpose. And to put it simply, we are to put everything in the pursuit of God. That's the idea behind a runner in a race. They're, they're taking every muscle they have, every ounce of energy, and they're putting it in towards running. The idea is that we gather up every part of our lives and we point it towards God. Just like with a runner, every muscle is engaged, so our lives are to be all in for the glory of God. Now, I, I'm not, like, some of you are, like, professional runners. Like, you guys are nuts. And you've got all the gear, you know, like the running gear, you know, and even the guys, they've got, like, their jogger shorts, and then they've got the leggings all the way down. My wife is like, no. See, see I'm like an amateur runner, but she's like, no. You just, you can wear joggers. You can wear sweats. Like, none of that, okay? It's, it's a rule. For those of you who run, you know that it takes every part of your, your, your body. Imagine if you went out for a run and your, your right leg's like, nope, not today. <laughs> You're not going to get very far. If half of your muscles are like, nah, not really into it. <laughs> You're not going to get very far. That's the image that Paul is saying. Like in this race of the Christian life, we need to be all in. We need to gather up everything in pursuit of God towards that finish line. Paul says, yes, we've not yet arrived. There are struggles. There are conflicting desires. But we're headed towards a glorious goal. So where do we get that strength? Why should we put everything into the pursuit of God? Here's why, friends. Because God put everything into his pursuit of you. That's where you get your power. That's where you get your strength. That's where you get the motivation. Listen, Jesus Christ is the ultimate runner. He came and he pursued you all the way to the point of death on a cross to pay for your sin and for my sin, to bring us together with him. His prize was you with him in glory. Has that truth gripped your heart? I pray that it would. And I pray that his grip on your life would not make you idle, but press on. Gather up all that you have in pursuit of him. So are you aimless today? Are you distracted? How are you running? How are you running this race? What is restricting you from running wholeheartedly? Confess that today. Just say, man, this is a weight. This is a snare. This is a sin that's keeping me from just running in and pursuing God. Or maybe you're not running at all. Maybe you've never started the race. You're not yet a Christian. I invite you today to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and begin that race. And you need to know forgiveness is not a prize you earn at the end of the race. It is a gift given to you from the start. He gives you forgiveness. He gives you his Holy Spirit so that we can run. 
Jesus grab hold of your life. And he intends to give you one blessing after another. This should drive you to focus on him and get rid of those sins and those weights. And those who have gone before you, they're cheering you on. And best of all, at the center of the crowd is Jesus. And he's cheering you on and he's empowering you in this day of growth all the way to glory. And that is good news. Amen. Let's pray together that we would respond in kind. Father, we thank you that you've sent Jesus and that he gave everything for us. And I pray that in response, we would make Christ our passion that he would give us the perspective that we need on where we need to grow and where we have grown, that he would truly be our purpose, running that race, aiming towards Christ and gathering up everything in the process towards that end. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to confess distraction, anything that would weigh us down or is weighing us down, or if we felt aimless, Pray that your Holy Spirit would draw us near this morning. It may mean that we need to make some decisions. Perhaps cut things out of our life or confess that the way in which we've been looking to the things of this world has been wrong. We've been putting too much value on them that it has surpassed how we value you. May this just be a time where we confess that May this be a time where we reflect on and respond to your pursuit of us. You ran for us. I pray that in response, we would run towards you. You've given us the grace. You've given us the power. May we not resist. May we be all in. And for anyone here that's never trusted in you, I pray that right now they would say, Jesus, you are my savior. I believe in you and I trust in you. Pray that they would believe and pray that even right now and experience your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.